Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here this morning. Uh, we got a lot of good things to talk about. I got uh, the CPI came out this past week. We're going to discuss that. Probably the PPI as well. We'll discuss that. Uh, government debt's always an issue for people. We're going to talk about the government debt. Why maybe you shouldn't be so concerned about it. Now, yes, I know that goes against the mainstream media, but we'll explain why. And then also to Apple, some changes there on who's manufacturing their phones. And then also to accident repair on, on uh, EVs. Well, we found some data that, well, to be frank, just doesn't look very good. Chase? Well, hey, as always, you got a, a stock. We call them companies, equities that, that you're looking at buying, selling, or holding. We've, we've also gotten a, a few questions lately kind of around more kind of financial planning, just general financial questions. Always happy to help with anything that we can help to do to improve your financial picture, your investment needs. So what you can do is you can go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. You'll see right at the top of the page there smart investing show questions just click on that tab go to that page type in your question and we'll be sure to, to cover it at an upcoming show here yeah so so let's get started here on, on the cpi because that's one thing we and we didn't really talk about this we can talk more about it today but the, the federal reserve came out yep. and really kind of changed direction we'll say on interest rates and really had some positive effects and that's because well the cpi Consumer Price Index did not show us much new news, and I believe it will be enough for the Fed to keep rates steady and put on an end to their hiking cycle. Now, we did this before we actually the Fed came out, and we were correct on that. The headline numbers showed just a 3.1% increase compared to last year, and the core CPI, which excludes food and energy, showed an increase of 4%. The headline number saw a nice benefit from falling energy prices as the energy index declined 5.4% compared to last year, and gasoline prices were down even more. They were down 8.9% compared to last year. Although the annual increases showed little to no change compared to last month, it is important to understand the progress that has been made from the peak inflation levels. Yeah, I think the, the core and the headline, they were like the same as the prior month, 0.1% mm -hmm. lower. So some people are like, oh, well, that's not. But again, you're not going to see down every single month. I mean, it, it, it's just not going to happen. And, and the big benefit is we are seeing, I'm going to say, that trend downward. Right. And I think what the Fed was concerned about was it go down and then pipe, you know, spike back up. That's why I think even though it didn't decrease, it didn't increase. And I think they're feeling much comfortable that, yes, we have our arms around this under control. Yeah, and the big thing as well is, again, you, you talked about those peak inflation levels. I mean, gosh, you go back to June 2022. Remember this? The headline CPI hit a cycle high of 9%. <laughs> and September 2022, core CPI hit its cycle high of 6.6%. So yes, it's still not at the Fed's target of 2%, but it's definitely trending towards that direction. And I remember when inflation was hitting to the, you guys don't get it, it's going to like 12% yes, inflation. Yes, I remember those people. 
Yeah. Well, we, we kind of see how that's played out. And, and we just didn't see that because what we looked at was the transportation, things coming across. The supply, supply chain demand. was going to get fixed. Yes. And, and that's what people don't realize. They, that's why they're sometimes terrible investors. They don't understand supply demand. And yeah. they don't look deep enough to say that, no, this is not going to be a problem. And again, we were correct two, three years ago saying they should be raising rates because inflation is going to come here. We got it. Correct on that and said, nope, now it's not going to last. And, you know, here we are again, declining, infl- declining inflation. Yeah. yeah. Decelerating. Decelerating. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. It's not well, that'd be deflation. Yeah. So declining inflation is okay to say that word, I think. I think that works. Yeah. yeah. A, a deceleration inflation is the, the technical, technical economic word. term <laughs> that other people use, but that works. But anyways, uh, also too, progress continues to be made in many areas, including food at home. Gosh, that, this number blew me away. Showed an increase of just 1.7% compared to last year. I mean, people, you know, obviously grocery prices are higher than they were back in 2019, but you have to remember, again, inflation is the increase. You don't want to see deflation. You will see deflation in some areas in, in food at home, but I, I think it's still healthy to see overall inflation, and we can keep it around that 1%, 2 3% level at food at home. That is, uh, I, I think, a big positive. Also, two areas that remain stubbornly high, well, includes motor vehicle insurance, which was up 19.2% compared to last year, and motor vehicle repair, which was up 12.7% compared to last year. Not surprised to see those two kind of moving in conjunction with another. Yeah. Obviously, the higher cost to, to repair cars is going to mean insurers need to charge more to, well, cover those costs when there are accidents. So I, I, I wouldn't believe that insurance would start to come down until the, the repairs start to come down. Now, the big one, we've talked about this a lot. Shelter continues to be the big headwind in the report as the index was up 6.5% compared to last year. And again, I want to point this out. It accounted for nearly 70% of the total increase in the core CPI. So, again, we talk around 4%, but nearly 70% of that is coming from shelter. Yeah. Now, while this has taken longer than anticipated, I still believe the shelter index will see subsiding price increases, which should continue to bode well for the overall inflation report. I thought we were going to see it in these later months, and it has come down a little bit. I think it was at 8% a couple mm-hmm. months ago, 6.5%, though, still elevated. I, th- I think we're going to get to a point where shelter is only, you know, maybe a 1%, 2% increase on that, and that's going to be a huge right. headwind. I'm I, sorry, I, tailwind for tailwind. inflation. I, I, and I think that's what will get us down to a 2% inflation rate. It'll be next year uh, because shelter costs. And we still see the so – here we go again, talk about supply and demand. The supply of new apartments coming online is just unprecedented. Uh, same thing now, houses are still being built. So you're going to get to this level where, uh-oh, the supply now exceeds the demand, and now prices have to fall, rents have to fall, and that will be a big positive for the CPI. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but I think we'll see it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say we'll start seeing anything more affected by mid, uh, mid-2024. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, the thing you have to understand is when home prices spiked the way they did, the shelter index didn't spike 17%. Right. So now it's kind of carrying forward. And you have to understand, too, it, it's based off people's rents and it's based off the owner's equivalent rent, which is basically someone saying, yeah, I, I think I can rent my house out for $5,000 a month. And <laughs> OK, great. That's what it is. You know, so it, 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 I think the real estate market is going to need to cool off before this number does come down. And, you know, there's been questions of, well, why do we still use this type of calculation when you have companies like Zillow, like Redfin, where you can get real-time data on yeah. housing prices rather than kind of the survey data. And I think that's one thing we're looking at saying, this is why I believe this is going to keep coming down. You look at that data, rents are not increasing 
six and a half percent compared to last year. Yeah, and and I think they will pull back, decelerate. I guess we use that word again. Uh, they're not going to go. Uh, I I don't don't believe they would go negative, but they will decelerate down to a level that and and again, kind of for seventy percent of the total increase. Well, now if that's not increasing, we could see you know inflation rates around a two percent level. And uh, I know the talk now next year was from the Fed, like, oh, people, oh, they're going to reduce in March. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think the earliest I would see would be June. I was so, going to say, yeah, yeah, I think it's June. And, you know, I, I did want to point out as well, we, we did a later post on it, just that I want to say the headline PPI number, again, the producer price index, that increased just 0.9% compared to last year. Right. So, I and, mean, that, that's a great indicator, I think, for future inflation in the coming months that, that it's just... I think getting below 4%, I mean, that is likely I think we'll see the December number will be below 4%. Yeah, yeah. And, and I always you know, promote this at the end, but this uh, information is also on our newsletter as well. I want to say that now because we're not going to talk about the PPI today, which is part of the whole equation. There were so many things that happened last week that we want to talk about. We just didn't have time to talk about it because we always do want to answer the email questions that we, we get from people. But uh, to get the newsletter for all the information, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And right there, you'll see a newsletter at the top in the in the middle there. You can question that. And then also, too, I see right below it, Smart Investing Show Questions. So if you got questions about what you read, you can send us a question there also. Well, let's move on. I, to, I did want to say yeah. just real quick, because we, we briefly teased with it, the Fed meeting. Yeah. Is, you know, you kind of mentioned it. I don't think it's going to happen in March. I do think you're still going to see volatility around Fed speak. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, because, oh, you had a Fed official come out and it's like, oh, well, they're not as strong on the rate cut. And, and as we've talked about, there's just too much Fed speak now. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, well, this person said this. And frankly, the Fed, they're economists. They're not going to come out and say, yeah, we're going to cut rates next right. year by, <laughs> you know, a, a full percent and we're going to start in March. They're not going to do that. They want to leave the table open that if all of a sudden inflation does creep back up, they don't want to look, I'm going to say, silly and right. be like, oh, crap. You know, right. what did we do? That's why they're very, I'm going to say, nonchalant in their answers when they're talking to me. They're like, well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and if you're like, oh, see, they're not cutting rates. And then, you know, you get a little bit pull pullback in some areas. It, I Don't be surprised. There's still going to be volatility around this whole Fed I'm going to say nonsense that, right. that people overreact to. And, and I think we've gone too far with too much information coming to the Fed. And I remember the days back when Alan Greenspan was uh, the, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And all the information that it got prior to the meeting was the size of his briefcase. And I forget the exact number, but I think it, it said if the briefcase is bigger, they're going to change in, or they're going to keep interest rates the same. Or And if it's smaller, then they're going to increase rate. I mean, they, they had this logic because that's all you got. And I like having Powell come out and talk about what he's going to do. I don't agree having all these other governors coming out saying, oh, this and that. It just adds to the confusion. They should have one speaker, who again is Powell, giving his opinion of what the Fed is doing. Not Because I, I, what is there, 10 board of governors for the Federal Reserve? I forget yeah, the number. I yeah. believe that's the number. And, and they all come out and say different 13. things. 13. Yeah, 13. yeah it, it's some number. So it's, it's just... Confuses things. Oh, it confuses things. And it's funny because it's, it's been so prevalent in the media. And, you know, I, I was talking to Raul Martinez after I did my segment on Fox 5. And I talked about, you know, the, the Fed's meeting right. on Wednesday. And I said, it's so funny because the, the Fed, the last, I'm going to say, uh, probably the last three years, has been so top of mind. Yeah. I think by the end of next year, 
frankly, nobody's going to really care about the Fed anymore. Because I think you're going to get rates reduced, and I think it's going to be at, you know, kind of that terminal rate, so to speak, where, you know, now there's no real need to increase rates, no real need to decrease rates. And all of a sudden, the Fed just kind of goes back to sit in the background, and it's not going to be a market mover. And it's just been so top of mind. And that's what has moved the market. Yeah. And, you know, there'll be something else at the end of 2024. I mean— you know, there is a presidential election, so that'll kind of come into play. But I, I think the Fed is going to kind of take a back seat here in the markets into 2024. It's just they're not going to be as impactful. Right, right. And I think next week uh, we'll have some good information. I, I assume we'll talk about it, about how markets move during presidential years. It's pretty good information. We just don't have it compiled for the show here today. But tune in next week. Next week is <laughs> our informational show. Yes, there we go. Well, uh, so we, we will not be live. Why? What is next week? Christmas. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, shoot. Well, you know what? Then people have to get the newsletter. We still send a newsletter. Yeah. yeah. So, gosh, I, 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 I can't believe Christmas is here. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, well, let's move on and talk about the government debt because uh, many times I'm asked or hear concerns by people about the government debt, and I tell them I don't like where it is, but it's not a major problem at this point. I'm sure people say, what is he talking about? Currently, the debt to GDP stands at 119.47%. Now, compare that to another developed nation like Japan, who has a debt to GDP of 263%. Now, I do not wish to see the U.S. get into that situation, but you have to notice that Japan has not fallen and has continued to move forward. They had this lull, but they have continued to move forward. They've not collapsed. They've not, you know gone out of business, they had to default on the debt. Yeah, and, and one problem as well with our government debt being so high is that there's only a certain number of buyers looking for debt. And if the government is absorbing more debt to cover their bills, it takes money out of the private sector debt market, which can slow down our economy. In summary, we are not in danger territory, but to improve our growth going forward, we need to get a handle on our debt and to grow our GDP much more. Still believe there's no need to panic for years to come. As you said, I mean, there, there's things that we can do and, you know, we're, we're not in that panic territory yet. It's, it's I'm going to say concerning, but not necessarily fully problematic at this point. You, you, I mean, you want to be concerned about things because yeah. if you're not concerned about it, you're not going to do anything about it. And you want to be watching it. You don't want to just go crazy with it. But when you look at all the factors, you look at the GDP, you look at, you know, what has happened to other countries, again, Japan. Japan's not the only one. I think there's three or four other countries have a much higher GDP or debt to GDP than we have. It doesn't mean that the government's going to collapse because it can pay the bills. We've got a good good economy. Um, and if we can grow the GDP more, and, and what, what does concern me a little bit is I think that debt's going to rise more because rates are higher. Yep. You know, it's, I'd much rather have a 10-year treasury that was that they're loaning out at, what, 2% yep. than the, the 4% is at now. But that's something I have to deal with. And there are things that they can do. And I'm glad to see them fight in Congress and so forth about it because it's on the front of the table. They're t- they're, they, they are slowing it down. They're not going to reverse it. But it's not going to destroy the country to where we're going to default and go into major depression. Uh, that's just not going to happen. It could slow down the growth in the economy is what I think is going to happen. Well, I mean, it's Japan's an interesting country. I mean, because what they had the, the Nikkei yeah. years ago, and that thing spiked. I don't even think it's close to where the peak was back. And it got way overpriced. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was ridiculous. You know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I remember we did a study on that before, and it, it's just 
it was just a crazy amount of overvaluation. But the point I wanted to go with that is with Japan. I mean, there's still great companies in Japan to invest in as well. I mean, you, right. you look at some of the businesses there. It's not like they don't have, you know, a good private sector. Right. And I think even Warren Buffett last year was – I don't know how those investments have panned out for him. But I know he made some substantial bets, I think, in Japan I don't as think well. he did. I think his lieutenants did. Potentially. Right. I, I don't. He was on talking about it. Though. Really? Yeah. I mean, it, it could have been. I. I don't know. I mean, I. I. It's so hard to to tell now with Berkshire because, you know, how active is Buffett versus his lieutenants? I'm not sure. But long story short, as I do know, they took a position in Japan. As I said, I'm not sure how it played out. But the point is, it's yeah, they're still functioning. Yeah. You know, it, it's not like it's oh my gosh, they are. You know, a a poor country that nobody wants to go to, that nobody wants to live in, that nobody wants to do business in, and, and I think the same thing is here. Right. Is you know, yeah, people are questioning our debt levels, but it's not going to stop people from investing in the United States. And and in, and in regards to the market being so high over there, I mean, we have what they call them now magnificent seven. That, I think, is a problem that we have. They're just way overpriced, and that's what hurt Japan was the, the, the valuations were way above the normal. Now, there are some good buys in the market now, and that's why we always call it uh, not a stock market but a market of stocks and go ahead and buy some things on sale. But I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't see great things going forward for Apple and NVIDIA. And, and yeah, they got some great products, but nothing stays at lofty levels forever, and history time and time again has proven that. Tech boom and bust. Japan. I mean, there's so many examples you can find that happening. Well, and I'm sure, I mean, we're, we don't invest in Japan, but I'm sure no. if you went back to the, the Nikkei, and I, I think I'm saying that correctly. I, I, may I, be, I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure if you went back to that time period, just because that index didn't do well doesn't mean there weren't stocks in that index that didn't do well. Right. So I'm, I can almost, I don't want to say guarantee, but I'm very confident that there was still good investments that could have been had because the problem was, as you said, the index just got way too expensive. Right. But there were probably companies that weren't too expensive that you probably had decent returns on over that time period. And I remember years ago, I think it was maybe even during the, the tech boom and bust, I went back, I looked at the uh, Great Depression, and when the Dow just fell off the cliff, there were a couple of companies that actually did not happen. They were food companies. Not everything got destroyed, but when you had the, again, we talk about now the Magnificent Seven, they account for, is it still 24% of the S&P? No, it's close to 30. Close to 30. Okay. Uh, we'll see. Uh, things have broadened down a little right. bit this last week, so I'm not sure. But last time I checked it, and I talked about this on the show last week with Harrison, but yeah, it was 30% of the S&P and close to 50% of the NASDAQ composite was the Magnificent Seven. And, and just say it's 25 to 30%. Seven companies account for a quarter to nearly a third of the index. That is just crazy. And I, and they are great companies. You, you know, you, you, you can't knock for what they do. But the history of valuations will show you that nothing stays at the top of the mountain forever. And valuations do become a concern and they fall very quickly when that generally happens. Yeah, and you could see the index go higher. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, yeah. It's done that in the past. But, you know, I was watching CNBC the other day and it was, uh, gosh, I think they said the valuations on it now is 19 to 20 times. And they, again, point out what we always point out. The historical level is about 17 times. So what does that mean? Earnings either have to grow substantially, which, you know, earnings growth is anticipated, but not to a substantial level to, to counteract the, the expensive valuation, or the index has to, to fall. Right. Or the index stays the same for the next few years to allow those earnings to catch back up. Yeah. 
So well, let's talk about one of those uh, magnificent seven companies, which is Apple. Uh, in the future, the next iPhone you purchase may not come from China, and it said it may come from India. Within two to three years, Apple's expecting to build over 50 million iPhones in India. If Apple reaches this goal, that would mean India would make up about 25% of global iPhone production. Currently, uh, global iPhone shipments are around 220 million per year, which means China will still account, uh, continue to account for about 50% of the iPhone production. And also, too, it does appear that relationships with Apple and the Chinese government are a little strained since the Chinese government banned some officials from using iPhones at work. And Apple has responded saying any iPhones sold in China will be produced in China. Now, another thing to point out is there are unions in India that do put up some barriers for Apple, but so far they have been able to work with the unions to get things done. For example, like having the ability to do a 12-hour workday if production increases are needed. Now, even with Apple's popularity here in the U.S., Samsung is still the global smartphone leader in the, the world. Uh, when I did this research, I was shocked on on the things. Now, number one, Samsung, I did not know was still – you just think Apple, Apple, Apple – and you forget about Samsung. It's not as big here. And I know people have Samsung phones, love them. Um, actually, I think I was with you with that new phone that opens up. That <clears throat> we said that's a pretty good phone. Oh, I, mean, I I went. I didn't tell you. I went to the uh, UTC mall last week with uh, my wife and her parents, and. Um, my father-in-law needed to get a phone for his son, and we were right. in the T-Mobile the store, and they had the Samsung phones there. And I was kind of playing with it. I'm like, geez, this thing is pretty cool. Like, I mean, right. it, it folds open, and you got, like, an iPad, you know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, 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 and then you can also fold. I mean, it was just somebody else had it. I saw it. It's like, it was pretty impressive. And I think it is about $2,500. Yeah. But an iPhone, a brand new iPhone, I think is what fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred. Yeah, it's not inexpensive. Yeah, it's, it's not like two or three times the amount. So I was impressed by that. But the other thing too that 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 did uh, uh, surprise me when I did this research was the unions in India. Yeah. I I just never because I still see them as a third world country. You're trying to grow. Why would you have a union in a third world country? That was surprising to me. And I, I'm not sure what the unions are like there. If they're, yeah, they said they're pretty strong, which is surprising. Yeah. yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure if they were going to be like the UAW or, you know, I mean, it, it, it seems like maybe they would bend the knees, so to speak, a little bit to a company like Apple to to get them to produce there. But the concern is maybe over time the unions get more power, and then Apple has to you know kind of abide by that, and it, it increases costs, and now it's like oh now. Now maybe we'll go back to producing more in China. You know, it's, it's a hard balancing act that these companies have to to play essentially. And you know, I did want to say as well with China, we talked about this too. But you know, Huawei is that's a Chinese company, oh, yeah. and I I continue to think that they're going to take market share from Apple there. I mean, it, they've just been out of the game, so to speak, for the last couple of years because of the U.S. restrictions. Now they've kind of figured a way around that, and now their phones are much stronger than right. they were. And it seems like people kind of like here in the U.S. are saying, we we want U.S., we want U.S. Sounds like pe some people there in China are saying, we want Chinese companies, we want Chinese companies. I mean, it it, it, it could be problematic right. for Apple's market share, and, and maybe their shipments still increase. But again, you're trading at 30 times earnings. you got to have yeah. good growth. And, I, and iPhones still make up, gosh, I think close to half, if not more, of their business. Right. It's... I, I just don't see the – and I, I see people on TV, oh, this is just the beginning of Apple. I saw they're now $3 trillion, about the whole size of the French stock market. That's 
I mean, it, you, I don't think it's a positive. I think it's I a think negative. It's terrible. <laughs> right. I mean, the thing you have to understand is what that means. It just very simplistically to get that higher, you need more money to yes. flow into it. And it was hard to get to a one trillion dollar market cap. Now it's at three trillion. That means you need another one trillion dollars essentially to flow into that right. company to get to a four trillion dollar market cap. Where's a trillion dollars going to come from? <laughs> I, I just the math it, it, it's getting too big where it, it just is going to get harder and harder for that company to grow. And people have loved it. It's up I think fifty some percent this year. That means for it to go up another fifty percent next year. That'd be another one and a half trillion dollars flown into it. I just don't see that happening. And, you know, and I'm sure some people are saying, "Yeah, they've been concerned about Apple for a while, and it's still going up." The thing is, the higher it goes, the greater the pain when it falls, and and that's the thing. It just gets, and and you never know how long craziness can go on. I mean, yeah, I think you said it trades at thirty times earnings. You know, the average again is is fourteen to seventeen. So you're you're almost double what the average is. Uh, it it just you know, and craziness can go on for years. But when it when it changes and the direction will change very quickly, you'll be surprised how fast that f- can fall. So and we uh, saw it fall in twenty twenty two. Yeah, I mean you you saw how fast it can fall. Yeah. Oh, but Chase, it came back. See, it came back. Yeah. And I, I said <laughs> I said last week I think what could happen is yeah maybe it, it's here and then maybe it goes down. 30, 40% again next year, and then maybe it comes back another 50%, yeah. and then maybe it goes down again 30, 40%. I mean, it could play that game of just bouncing up and down for the next five years. That, that's a real possibility yeah. to allow those earnings to catch up, but I think five, 10 years from now, it's I, I don't see it doubling. At one time, IBM was like, oh, IBM can do no, no wrong, and they they went to high valuations, and now like... Gee, yeah. I mean, yeah, they, they, they're out there. So, so just, again, great company. I have an Apple phone. I have an iPad. But I won't overpay for it. I'm still considering. Company. I, I'm just too cheap to buy another phone. But if there was a decent deal on that Samsung phone, I, I would consider switching. You, you know, and I would too because I saw somebody use it. It was just, and then I don't think I would need an iPad. You could carry so, one yeah. thing, and because there's times I have my iPads in my briefcase in the back seat, and eh, you know, forget about it. Um, but having one phone could be good. And, and I don't understand. The you know hear about the operating system. It's a little bit harder to change over. Yeah, but there will be a point where you know what a little bit harder, but it's worth it. Yeah, and frankly, I have a ton of contacts in my phone that don't even even call. So it's like yeah, I'll just transfer over the important contacts. You know, it's, <laughs> it is what it is. So if you're on Chase's list, if you haven't talked, watch out, while, you're getting axed. <laughs> you're gonna be dropped. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, accident repair because uh, this was another thing too. And uh, people own EVs, maybe saving money on gas, but they lose that benefit when it comes to repairs. If you get in an accident, uh, this is because of such things as how the cars are built and special storage. Uh, may be required because of the lithium batteries to prevent fires. Last year, the average cost for a crash from an electric vehicle was $6,587, which was 50% higher than all vehicles, which was $4,215. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's okay. I don't have to pay for accidents as my insurance will cover them. Well, unfortunately, the insurance companies know they pay more for electric vehicle repairs. So you'll pay 44% more for car insurance on an electric vehicle or about $357 per month compared to $248 per month for normal vehicles. Now, you may still love your electric vehicle, but they've 
only really been around for a few years. As time passes, we are finding out more and more about the downsides that we need to know before, well, we step in and kind of buy one. And one thing we didn't bring up here is that depreciation on EVs is a lot higher. I mean, when you look at a, and I forget the exact numbers, but three year, because now we have EVs for a while, the depreciation is sometimes 70% after three years, wow. which is huge because the cost of a new battery, and I know the batteries could go 100,000 miles, but you know, like I've, I've had my Escalade for what, three years? I'm nearly at 60,000 miles. So if you have an electric vehicle for four years, you're at 80,000 miles, you may have to replace a battery and 20,000 miles, that, that's most of the car. Yeah. And, and it's more expensive on the tires for the cars. The, I've heard the transmissions take more, more of, a, of a, a workload, I guess I call it. Um, so it, it, it's just, and again, the EVs, as we've said many times before, we think down the road, you're going to have EVs, uh, you're going to have gas vehicles, hydrogen vehicles. It's going to be a mix of many different things because they all have negatives to them. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if you're a hefty commuter, I don't think an EV makes sense, which is kind of funny because you think, well, now I'm paying more on gas. But I think, as you said, the wear and tear can be quite costly. But I you know, I have a, a friend and they don't commute a whole lot. And they're like, it's great. I have an EV and yeah. I, I don't pay for gas ever and it, it's it's simple so i mean it as you said having the different drivetrains i think is going to be very beneficial but it's going to be very dependent on your situation on, on what's going to be better for you know your lifestyle essentially in terms of what what you need to buy and keep in mind that the government has to do something because ev owners are paying no money for repair of roads because they don't buy gas which is what the gas tax well goes you know to. you know what we can do what can we do you know they'll probably come up with in the state of california we should just increase the gas tax even more <laughs> <laughs> you know they might they might do that but i have heard talk about which to me may, would make a lot of sense is that if you have an ev vehicle you register you you pay more you know that seems to be the most logical and the easiest way to implement that like Hey, you, you're not paying the gas tax, so instead of paying you know thousand dollars for your car registration of an EV vehicle, you're gonna pay a fifteen hundred. Gosh, then we'll have to launch a task force on why our registration has gone up. <laughs> Sorry, that was last dig at the California yeah. government for we'll, today. We'll move on from politics. <laughs> so, all right, uh, if you want to get uh, more information from the newsletter, again, a lot of great topics in there. Uh, we also talk about uh, in in the newsletter that you can. I see Harrison has a long topic today, doesn't he? He's got. Quite a big, big one. I think it's about talking. holiday giving. Yeah. Oh well, that's that's a good one. I I, I know tomorrow on uh, KUSI, I'm talking about some holiday stuff about talking about uh, finances at your at your Christmas table. Uh, we'll, we'll have to watch that tomorrow. Holy but, uh, cow! This is a long. one. It is a long one. Yeah, <laughs> I know he's waiting here right now. I was going to go to him in a minute, but um, also in that news, where we talk about the California government. <laughs> you got to read that one. Investing in California. Uh, I'm sorry, investing in China. Also, too, we didn't talk. We talked about the CPI, but we did uh, have a, in there the PPI. Uh, we also talked about uh, hotel theft. <laughs> that was amazing when I did research on that. Uh, investors, I want you. I kind of sh we should have probably done this one if we get a chance, but we got so many emails to go over. Uh, ETFs called Yield Max. Watch out for this because this is a another sales thing that Wall Street's doing that's going to get people excited. And you're going to lose a lot of money on that. So you want that newsletter, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Right in the middle page is newsletter. Click on that. Sign up. goes out every Friday at 5 o'clock. You'll see it in your in-basket and your uh, email. All right. Uh, let's talk to uh, our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Good morning, Harrison. How are you doing this morning? 
Good morning, guys. How's it going? Well, it's going going pretty good. Uh, I see today you got a topic talking about the season of giving, and Chase mentioned that next weekend is Christmas weekend already. I can't believe. So you're right on topic here with your season of giving. Yeah. Uh, before I get into that, I, I heard you guys were talking about California, and it made me think I just wanted to throw something extra in there that's, that's great. So right now, on wages in California, everyone pays an additional tax that goes to fund disability for um, for California, and right now it's 0.9% of all gross wages. <clears throat> Starting next year, that is increasing to 1.1% of gross wages, and right now there's a cap. You're only taxed on the first $153,000 of wages, but next year that cap is getting removed. So it's just another tax increase, which is kind of misleading because when you look at the California tax brackets, a lot of people are in the 9.3% tax bracket, but then when you add in this, it's really 10.4. So it's just another tax that California is levying on us, and it just uh, really grinds my gears. So anyway, <laughs> I just to say that. And that's why more people are leaving California than coming in, unfortunately, and the, and the government in uh, Sacramento does not get that concept. But yes. we digress. So um, anyway, <laughs> this is the season of giving. So whether it's to charity, church, or family, uh, people tend to be in a more giving spirit during the holidays. If you happen to be in the giving mood, there are a few rules to be aware of. When giving to family or friends, there's an annual gift limit that applies. This year, it's $17,000 per person. Next year, it increases to 18000 Now, this limit is stackable, so a married couple can give twice that or $34,000 to as many people as they want, and they may repeat this for as many years as they want. This gift is not deductible to the giver and does not count as income to the recipient, so it just goes straight across. And for extra generous givers, you can use a 529 account to gift five years' worth of gifts at a single time, uh, meaning a married couple could give $170,000 to as many beneficiaries as they want. This applies to beneficiaries of any age, and they do not need to use the funds for education as long as they withdraw that entire gift from the 529 account before it has a chance to accumulate earnings. Givers may also gift appreciated shares of stocks to avoid paying uh, taxes on the gains. In this case, the recipient inherits the gain and will realize that income if the shares are sold, which may be at a lower tax rate than the person that made the gift. Um, when you're looking at charitable gifts, it's important to verify if the donation will be deductible to you. So in order to receive a tax benefit, you must itemize your deductions, meaning you need all of your deductions to exceed the standard deduction. And this applies to both federal and state taxes. So even if you don't itemize federally, you may still itemize on the state side and receive a tax benefit for a charitable donation. Uh, givers may also donate appreciated shares of stock when donating to charity to receive the tax deduction and avoid the capital gains tax. In this case, if you liked the investment, you could simply repurchase the stock, which basically resets your cost basis, so you still get the tax deduction for it, and you, um, you can kill, keep the stock going forward. Uh, keep in mind, when you give to charity, the dollar amount of the tax benefit does not outweigh the amount of the d donation, so you're still costing yourself money, or in other words, you're still being charitable. You, you can't make money on a charitable gift. Um, and lastly, for people who are over the age of 70 and a half, have an IRA, and who would like to make a charitable don donation, they should heavily consider using their IRA to make that donation directly to charity. 
This is called a qualified charitable distribution and will offer the same tax benefit as an outright donation, but with a bunch of extra perks. With a qualified charitable distribution or QCD, the giver receives the full tax benefit whether or not they itemize. So even if you claim the standard deduction, you can still get the same tax benefit. Um, since the donation is coming from an IRA, this will reduce the amount of future required distributions they have to take, which therefore reduces taxable income. Also, QCD is not included in someone's adjusted gross income or their taxable income, while regular donations only reduce taxable income. So this reduces taxable income and adjusted gross income, which means this has the chance to reduce your Medicare premiums in addition to taxes. So a lot of extra things uh, with, with the QCD. So if you plan to uh, do some giving this season, doing it in the most efficient way, we'll give you some tax savings or even allow you to give a little more. You know, Harrison, you bring up a lot of things here. And this is why I look at it's so important if you have a good financial planner because this sounds pretty good and like, yes, yeah, going to reduce your estate, but you still need to sit down with somebody that knows what they're talking about because there are some people, in my opinion, that shouldn't be giving your money away to their children. Because I will tell you, once you give the money to children, you need it. It's not going to come back to you, you know? So yeah. you've yeah, got to sit down with a true. with an expert like yourself to say, yes, this may be for you. This may help you out with your estate, but you're not thinking about these other things here that you're, you've left behind. Yeah, I actually had that exact conversation with someone this week who wanted to make some Christmas gifts to their kids, but they were wondering how much they can really do without, um, without you know, giving too much and hurting themselves financially. So, I mean, that's another good point, Brent. And, and we've had a couple of clients over my years of doing this, and it, it fortunately doesn't happen very often, but where, where something will come up, a medical cost, and, and I'll never forget this one, I mean, um, where the person needed money uh, because the insurance wouldn't cover it. And if had they given most of the money away, they could have destroyed and they're taking income from their portfolio. Uh, they may have not been able to do that or they'd hurt their income going forward uh, for their surviving spouse. I mean, there's so many factors that you have to look at. And that's why, I mean, you do this every day for, for years now, talking with people, you listen, and then you say, well, this is what you can do, but this may happen. So they can make a good decision. This is a good what a good financial planner does. Yeah, it's really about just laying out all the different options, explaining what they mean, and um, you know, making a recommendation, and then ultimately, um, you know, whoever I'm working with can make the most informed decision based on what works best for them. Right. And I think as well as, you know, you do a great job, it, it has to be for that person. I mean, I know we were talking this past week about how a lot of times people hear a buzzword like Roth conversion. They're like, oh, they said Roth conversion's good. I'm going to do it. And it's like, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It, it depends on, you know, your yes. taxes and things like that. And I mean, it's the same thing with the, the QCDs, with the donating stock, with the, the 529. I'm going to say the, the bulk gifting like that. I mean, it really depends on your cash flow, your taxes, but they are potential tools that you can use in your financial plan. I mean, you, you don't want to, you know, hit a nail with, uh, you know, a, a pitchfork or something like that. It's not going to work. Yeah. So it, yep. it's yeah. the same thing there. Yeah. So, well, good. All right. Well, Harrison, uh, thank you very much. Uh, you have a great, uh, great rest of the weekend there, and, and uh, we'll see you on uh, Monday.
Monday's not Christmas, right? All right. We're okay. Right? Not, not, not this Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Next Monday. Okay. Thank you, Harrison. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right, guys. We'll see you Monday. You know, it's funny. You can tell how handy I am. I couldn't think of another tool besides the hammers. <laughs> That's why I said a pitchfork. <laughs> pitchfork. I, I, was like, I was trying to think of another tool besides a hammer, and I was like, I don't know, pitchfork. You know, because my point was that, you know, a hammer is a good tool, but you use it to hit a nail, but, like, you, you can't use a pitchfork to hit a nail. It's the same thing. You have these tools that are helpful, right? but you got to make sure you use the right tool for the right yeah. task. And our show is podcast, so you can't ever take that back. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah. You tried. We'll give an A for effort there. So. Uh, Harrison, again, if you want a free consultation with him, he is our financial planner. Keep in mind, he's on a salary. He's not going to try to sell you annuities or life insurance, no commission products. He really sits down and listens to you to give you the best financial plan for your future. Uh, give him a call at the office, 858 858- Five four six four three zero six. That's eight five eight five four six four three zero six. You can also contact them through the website smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. All right, uh, let's go to our e- emails uh, here. We got one from a Joel in uh, Alpine. I invested in SRC Spirit Realty REIT last year, and since the industry increases has gone down. Wait a minute, and since the interest rate increase. Increases is has gone down. When was this? Uh, November. I, well, I guess I started well, going down the, a little bit. The ten year started falling in November. That's so, right. Yeah, because yeah. it went way up. But I, I think since last year, it'd be and up. it's not even interest rate increases have gone down. I mean, it's interest rates are falling. Right. But I think since last year, I would think they'd be higher. They're still a little bit higher than last yeah. year. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, however, O recently announced that it will buy SRC at uh, thirty seven dollars per share which sent the share price way up and also above $37 a share, as well as financial news of no more rate hikes. Should I sell and move the money to a different stock or wait until the first quarter buyout from O? I'm worried that they will still transact at 37 and I'll lose the difference. Currently, it is around $40 per share, or will they negotiate a better price since they agreed before when the price was 33 34 So much in this here. This, this, this is always a difficult situation. We're going to look at SRC. To look at the fundamentals there. We had years ago, we had a same situation where we had a REIT that we held, bought by another REIT, turned out very good for us because you've got to understand more about SRC, who is buying O. I did want to say before we get into it, I sure. was very curious on this is, the reason it's not going to be a, a fixed price is because it is an all-stock deal. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it's not only now hinging off SRC, but it's going to hinge off the fundamentals for O because, well, when you get this acquisition, you don't get cash. You just get shares in O. Right, right. And, and that's why we're going to look at SRC to see is this going to be – because you're now going to own SRC you're gonna get the stock. Is it going to be worth holding SRC? So. Well, no, you're going to get O. Wait, who, who's buying who here? O is buying SRC. You know, then then we don't really care about SRC. We should yeah. be looking at O. So we kind of have this uh, reversed here. So let, let, let's change uh, O, realty income mm-hmm. is O. So, so let's do it's the fundamentals on that one. California company here too. I think they're over in Del Mar. O is? Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, oh. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, well, so, so we're going to change that because this is what you want to do. You want to look at... Because the company that's being acquired, it doesn't really matter. You want to understand how much debt the new company is taking on and cash flow and so forth. But you're going to get shares of this new company. So let's look at shares of realty income, symbol O. You said they're in San Diego right here in UTC? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Uh, Del Mar. 
Delmar. Okay. Uh, looking at them, their, their symbol again is O. Very, very easy. Uh, then the REIT retail. Ooh, don't like saying that. Uh, we do see float is only 3.1%, 80% institutional held. Um, this also, too, and Chase is going to cover this because we're going to look at some things here, like the P.E. ratio is 43.5 versus 37.8. Uh, price to sales, 9.9 versus 6.8. Price to tangible book value, 1.8 versus 2.7. That's the first pause I've seen. And price to cash flow, well, that's 13.6 versus 11.9. And the peg ratio, 1.9 for O versus uh, industry is 17.4, so that's a big positive there. Now, earnings over the last year are up 33.3% for O, while the industry's down 16.2. Sales climbed by 23.9%, uh, industry up 11.1. The five-year growth rate for O looking very good, 226 versus 4.6. They do pay a nice dividend of 5.4%. Does show they use 229.9% of the earnings to pay that out. But again, this is a REIT, so the number is a little bit different because of depreciation. A couple other things there. Uh, we do see that uh, their, their debt here, current ratio is a 1.5 versus 1.2. Debt equity, very good, 0.7 versus 3.9. They only have, they got 15.9% intangible assets on the balance sheet versus 3.2. Uh, don't like seeing that. Net profit margin, very good though, 22.6 versus 18.8. And return on equity, very low, 2.8 versus 5.8. But again, being real estate, a little bit difference there. Chase, what do you got? Yeah, I was kind of looking, and this is something you really want to understand owning this business, but um, I just kind of wanted to see where they're at in terms of the assets they own because it's, it's a it's a big company. I mean, it's not a, a small REIT. It, its market cap is quite substantial here. Uh, trying to scroll up real quick. The market cap is about $41, $42 billion, and they do own you know uh, 13,250 real estate properties. So it, it's, it's a huge company. And I know you're worried about retail. I, I was able to go to their website real quick about 11 percent of their business is in grocery stores which i think okay. is pretty stable yeah 10 percent in convenience stores which That's i think is pretty good seven percent dollar stores six percent drug stores home improvement restaurants automotive services health and fitness general merchandise so there's a lot of other things but grocery and convenience are about 20 percent which i i think is going to be a little bit more stable than you know, like if you had, a, I'm going to say, a Kohl's or Macy's in your right. strip mall. Right. And, and that's why the research is so important. Because when I saw retail, I immediately, immediately thought, malls. Oh, that's not going to be good. But again, you got to dig deeper and find that it's not malls. Convenience stores are great. Grocery stores are great. So, yeah. 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 So I, I think that there could be some great real estate. But again, you got to dive down deeper into that portfolio to see what they own. But the current price here for realty income, again, ticker symbol is O. Well, it's $57.29. The 52-week high is $68.85. And the 52-week low is $45.04. See, over the last year, it's down about 11%. And uh, year-to-date here, uh, probably about down the same, down 10%. Now, if we go forward, we're going out again to now December 2024. Well, what we see here is we look at the funds from operations, essentially a good proxy for cash flow. Out to 2024, the estimate is $4.27. That would give us a target sell price is $70.88. Tells me the stock trades at about 13 times the future FFO there, which uh, makes it okay. But frankly, there's a lot of other real estate that just has been beaten down with the rising interest rates. I'd be more intrigued in, in that type of real estate versus a, a realty income. It, it looks like, yeah, you get a good dividend. Maybe it's a little bit more stable, more secure, but I, I don't see much price appreciation opportunity there for O. Yeah, and, and O, realty income, is a great REIT. 
It's just that we want to buy things on sale. And this coming again, their earnings are up 33%, sales up 23.9%. It's a great REIT. But the time to buy it was when it was on sale. And right now it's kind of like, yeah, you're getting okay price for it. Uh, but we think now in this situation, there's a lot of other REITs out there that are trading a lot better prices that are on sale that I think down the road, 12, 24 months, you do far better buying something on sale than buying the realty uh, income REIT here. Uh, so that kind of brings us back to the question. What I think uh, uh, Joel should do here is is sell out of uh, SRC, Spirit Realty, uh, and take that money and find another REIT on sale. Yeah, because as you said, you're, you're not going to get at the acquisition date, you know, uh, an actual price. It, it's it, You're going to have this moving price target essentially at the end of the day, and it's going to hinge off O. So, yeah, I mean, as you said, it, I, I think there'd be better opportunities in the real estate space, and I, I'd like to look for those values than holding out for the conversion to O shares. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, and there's a lot more to it. I mean, and again, if we were going to do this, and when, when we did it for our REIT uh, a couple of years ago, we spent a lot of time looking at the, the effects. Is it going to be accretive to the earnings? Uh, how much more debt they're going to have in, in space? But based and on what we see here. And we ended up holding our REIT that was converted yeah. to the new REIT, and we, we still really like that business. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's done well for us. Pays, I think, uh, still a decent dividend too. Oh yeah, yeah, great dividend. And it, and we always get upset because it was on our buy list, and then things are down. People complain like, yeah, but we get to buy. Well, now it's gone up. Like, shoot, now we can't buy anymore because it's <laughs> past the buy price. So, all right, uh, well, let's move on to another uh, email here. Now, this one comes from Tom. Very simple. He's straight to the point. Can you analyze VSAT Viasat? I own a few shares, not a significant part of my portfolio. Thank you. So let's look at Viasat. Again, their symbol is VSAT. Uh, what happened here? Did I not hit? Oh, got to hit enter for the data to come up, don't you? Uh, <laughs> okay, because they're in the uh, communication equipment uh, industry. Wow, 10% float. That's uh, on the high side. Not sure why that is there. We'll have to kind of look at it a little deeper. 86.7% institutional owned. No P.E. ratio. It shows no earnings over the last 12 months. That's not a good start. Industry does have a P.E. ratio of 21.8. Price to sales comes in good, though, 0.7 versus 1.7. Price to tangible book value, 4.4. The industry does not have a price to tangible book value. And price to cash flow looks good as well, 5.2 versus 11.9. No peg ratio for Viasat. They do not show any earnings over the last uh, one year or five years. They show sales over the last year were up 17.2%, which is better than the industry at 12.8. They do not pay a dividend. Looking at the balance sheet, current ratio 2.6 versus 1.7. That's positive. Debt to equity 1.5 versus 2.6. Positive to the industry, but it's in that area that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the debt to equity 1.5. We do see a net profit margin 9.3, better than the interest at 8.1. Return on equity is only 6 uh, versus 27.7 for the industry. So I'm I'm kind of like not feeling great about this. Do you guys think it's going to change my mind here, Chase? Well, just another uh, San Diego-ish company here. They're up in Carlsbad, California. Yes. Um, yeah, they're in the, the satellite kind of space. And gosh, I... I... I'm just going to say I'm shocked here. Current price is $26 a share. I haven't looked at Viasat in a while. I'm say I'm shocked because, yeah, I remember back in 2019, the stock was around $95 a share. Ooh. Uh, so over the last 10 years, it's actually down 57%. Over the last five years, it's down 58%. So, I mean, this stock is, frankly, just not done well at all. 
Oh, um, I bet that's I mean, a, that's a, a friend that ball. worked there for Viatet, I think it was. I, I know a couple people that worked there, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's a good company, but the, the problem is it's the earnings are so crazy cyclical. Right. But, so, but, but that hasn't helped over 10 years, being down 56% over 10 years. Well, if you're going through, obviously, the return was good when you were at 94 yeah. on the 10-year, but now right. the 10 years return is bad because you're at 25, and yeah. things can reverse. You just got to look at the numbers closely. But it, it's... I have frankly never liked Viasat because it, it's too complicated. You see their earnings are just way too variable. At least it is what I saw when I looked at it in the past. So it is really hard to make a good judgment on the valuation of this company. And, and I'll give you the number that we have here. I go to March 2025, a report on a fiscal basis. The average estimate for earnings per share is $1.90. Well, that would give us a target sell price here of $31.54. So, I mean, it, it's... I'm, a little over 13 times those future earnings is what you're paying. It's not, I would say, inexpensive. But again, the problem is they could make a bunch of money one year right. and then lose money the next year. It's hard to get a good earnings cycle and good understanding of this business. And and, and you use a different one for the earnings than I do here because you said for March 2025 was $1.91? $1.90. $1.90. Um, actually, the one that I'm looking at, which is a different company, and they could be having different analysts. They have four analysts. They say only $0.92 cents in March 2025. That's a big wow. difference. Uh, and actually, in 2024, they're looking for a loss of $6.58. And also for that March 2025, back 90 days ago, their estimate was $1.80, closer to your estimate that you're showing, uh, dropped all the way down to $0.92. Cents. I mean, that's a, that's a big decline there, about uh, 50%. So uh, I, I would not want to be in this company at all. I mean, I, it's I, just it's very hard to to read as i said i mean it's like you look back to 2017 they made not very much but 23 million and then the next year they lost 67 million and the next year they lost 67 million in 2020 they're about break even then they made 3.7 million then in 2022 they lost 15.5 million and then the, last year they made a billion wow and then this year they're estimated to make 310 million or that's what they've made so far this year it's just hard to understand for the average person digging through that. I mean, as I said, I don't even like to invest in companies like that because it's just too complicated. Yeah, too complicated. If you can't understand something, I learned a long time ago, if you can't understand it, everybody was saying, oh, it's great. They're going to do this and that and so forth. If you don't understand it, don't do it because you're going to regret it because if you're wrong, you're going to say, I knew I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, I hate to say bad about a uh, San Diego-based company, but I, I, I just can't recommend a buy on this. And don't forget, 10% short. Yeah, uh, on the float side. So, so that means um, Tom, we do not like it. And I think you said you own a small part of it. I would recommend selling and uh, buying something else that's on sale. Mm -hmm. So, all right, so we got time for a couple more here. I think we can do this here. Uh, let's see. This comes from Jam. She says, Brent, I've been listening to you since 1999, and love that you added Chase's youthful uh, exuberance and opinions to the show. Um, I always look forward to Saturday mornings and never fail to read your newsletter. Thanks so much for all that you do and the wisdom you unpack. My question concerns Cigna. The stock makes up 2.9% of my wife's and my son's non-retire and my non-IRA account. We're in our early 70s. I love the dividend and believe the stock finally may have bottomed. We bought 100 shares several months ago and are down 3.8% since then. I'm considering doubling our stake in the company. I'd like to have your take on its proposed merger with Humana and, of course, potential government interference with that plan. 
thanks, and I'll be listening this morning. Now, this we received on Saturday, December 2nd. Yeah. Since that time frame, it has changed to where the Cygnus says, no, we're not going to do that merger. And they actually came out, too, with some good information on, on that. Not only are they not going to do that, but it was a buy, buyback. They're buying back a ton of stock. They are still listing their Medicare Advantage business to sell as well. It, it looks like that could be valued around $3 billion. Um, and it looks like there's a, a couple potential bidders on that. So that could give them more capital as well to potentially do more buybacks, be more shareholder friendly. I mean, um, Frankly, when that Humana deal was announced, it crushed the stock. Yeah. And then when the Humana that, deal... like 10, 15 percent? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then when the Humana deal fell through and they announced the stock buyback, it, it, it soared. So, yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it's kind of washed out since then, but... Uh, I pull back a little bit from that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's... I, I think since the deal was announced, though, it's probably close to around that, that same level. Yeah. Since yeah. before it was announced, I should say. Yeah. Well, well, let's look at the numbers here so we can give you some more information on uh, Cigna. Uh, their symbol is CI. They're in the healthcare plans industry. Uh, only 0.9% float uh, short on the stock. 90.2% institutional owned. They have a nice PE ratio of 16.4 versus 19.9 for the industry. Price of sales only 0.5 versus 0.7. Price of book value 1.9 versus 3.1. And price of cash looks good as well, 7 versus 11.9. A peg ratio, which tells you what you're paying with the future growth of the company, is only 1 versus 3.2. Now, over the last year, earnings have fallen by 14.9% with the industry up 13.3. And sales, not quite as good as the industry. They were only up 5.4% for Cigna versus 13.3% for the industry. Now, the five-year growth rate, however, for Cigna is 11.2% better than the industry at 11%. They pay a decent dividend of uh, 1.7%. Uh, they only use 26.8% of their earnings to pay that out, so that's a, a positive there. Uh, they are an insurance company, so therefore there's not a normal balance sheet. We do see a debt to equity of only 0.7 versus 0.8. Net profit margin, 2.8 for Cigna, just under the industry at 3.3. Return to equity, 11.6. Not quite as good as the industry at 21.9. Chase? Yeah, so current price here for Cigna is $290.50. I see the, the 52-week low is $240.50, and the 52-week high was $336. Uh, current market cap is about $85 billion, and that's important because the stock buyback they announced was uh, now giving them authorization authorization for about $11.3 billion. So, I mean, that is, gosh, about 13% of the company, and they're going to do about $5 billion, they said, uh, by the first half of next year, which, you know, that's, you know, a, a right. pretty substantial amount, you know, about five, six percent of that business. So that's a big positive. That's yeah. a huge positive. I mean, that essentially increases earnings, increases the, or not earnings, but earnings per share for your shareholders by six percent, all else equal. Other thing we look at here going forward out to December 2024, I do see the estimated earnings per share is $28.26. Gives us a nice target sell price here of $469.12. Trades at a forward PE of under 10.5 times. I, I like this business. We're going to be going out to 2025 here shortly on our numbers as well. And there's another substantial 12.5% estimated increase in earnings for 2025. We're looking at 3180 I mean, I... This business is a great value. I, I think it, it's tried and true. We like insurance right. companies because that, that earnings, I'm going to say, is a little bit more kind of stable because you're just collecting those premiums in the long term. And um, I, I like this business. And, and I go back 90 days going out uh, December 2024. The, the earnings were per share about the same. They're off a couple of cents. But when you look at the buyback of, you said, about 13%, 
that will increase the earnings per share because there's less people in the pie to share those earnings. So that would be greater earnings on top of the growth and even a lower P.E. So I, I like this stock a lot. Yeah. I guess we got to close with that. Gosh, That's it. Fast. Yeah, so. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purpose only and should not be used as an investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Brent Wilsey, or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And be sure to listen to the podcast. You can listen to many different places like uh, Apple, Pandora. Um, also to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. Sign up for the newsletter. Also to enter your questions that you have for the show here. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I did all that.